This is the Education Gadfly Show. Um, he's usually not on the show, but uh, he's filling in. Well, so he's usually happy to be here, I hope. Sometimes I have nothing better to do. What does Gadfly say? Hi, I'm your host, Brandon Wright of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. We're at the Education Gadfly Show and online at edexcellence.net. And let me welcome our special guest for the week, Elon Musk of EdReform, Kathleen Porter-McGee, Superintendent and Chief Academic Officer of Partnership Schools. Uh, well, hey, I'm Kathleen. glad to be here, but I don't know about the reference <laughs> to Elon Musk, honestly. <laughs> right. I guess there could be some bad news when when, when this airs on Wednesday, right? There's some earnings report Let's hope or it's something. Good. So I didn't mean it that way. I meant it as a, like a very positive, you know, like good. trailblazer <laughs> and big thinker and everything else. So Got it. Okay. And also here is Checker Finn, the president emeritus of the Fordham Institute. Um, he's usually not on the show, but uh, he's filling in. Well, so he's occasionally I'm happy nothing, to be here, I hope. Some days I have nothing better to do. So uh, <laughs> I'm happy. I, I am happy to be here. And I th- actually think Kathleen uh, does have some potential to be the Elon Musk of Catholic education, at least. Uh, I mean, Good he, or bad. he invented an electric car. She's kind of inventing an electric school. <laughs> Um, All right. not electronic, electric. It's pretty, it's pretty, um, highly charged when you get there. Okay. So we can hopefully get to that. And now it's time for the education reform update. Okay. So, uh, we're going to ask you, Kathleen, uh, is there any hope for Catholic schools and to what extent does that hope depend on vouchers? Uh, well, I think there's hope for Catholic schools or else I guess I wouldn't be working with them right now. Um, and I think, I assume what you mean here is there, is there any hope for, for urban Catholic schools, which have been right. struggling for a long right. time? Actually, suburban Catholic schools and Catholic schools that serve the elite are doing quite well in many areas, but urban Catholic schools do continue to struggle. Um, I absolutely think there's hope. I mean, I think that w- this is, I'm going into my fourth year at partnership schools and it's really been an amazing journey for lots of reasons. One of the things that leaves me most optimistic is the strength of the foundation of Catholic schools is real and I've been able to see that. We are definitely turnaround schools, but we've been able to make tremendous progress in a short period of time um, working with the veteran teachers and the veteran leaders who, who have been there for a long time. And again, I think that that speaks to the strength of the foundation. Um, that said, I think the financial challenges are, are real. Um, vouchers and tax credits help, but I, I think we need more than, than just that. Um, I think that's one piece of the puzzle that would help solve the financial side. But I also really think that Catholic school leaders need to, need to embrace change. They need to kind of adapt or die. And we're in a moment where that's real. And one of the ways I think they need to do that is to really embrace and respond to the, the increased competition and the increased emphasis on, on academic rigor and, and also on academic results. If they don't, they're not going to get public aid from very many sources, in which case the vouchers and tax credit scholarships are not going to flow in very many cases. It's going to be the quid pro quo. And if Catholic school leaders uh, dig in their heels and say, under no circumstance, are we going to have any public accountability for whether our kids are learning anything? Uh, they're not going to get the money they need to survive as schools. I mean, Kathleen runs great schools. I've been there a couple times. Yeah. Can you just explain exactly your organization's like how many schools you run and sure. everything? Um, so we're a private school management organization. So basically a private nonprofit that has full operational and management control over 
currently six schools in New York, three in Harlem and three in the South Bronx. So we run kind of like a charter management organization. We are independent of the diocese, um, but we are accountable to the diocese. So they technically are still diocesan schools and we have an agreement to, to run them and have full control over them. Um, and again, we're in our fifth year as a, we're entering our fifth year as a school management organization um, where we've done a bunch of things, including trying to turn around the schools operationally and financially, but also my work has been really focused on um, the academics, the curriculum and instruction and making changes there. But their economic model is uh, very tenuous. They've had a lot of private philanthropy uh, to uh, buttress what these uh, low-income families are able to pay by way of tuition and what the archdiocese is able to contribute by way of maintaining these schools. And as a result, they've made a go of it financially, though it's, it's though it's they're, they don't exactly make a surplus. Uh, but uh, that economic model hinges on the private philanthropy that so many urban Catholic schools don't have. That's why this is not viable long term. It may not even be viable long term for her six great schools. And that's true. I mean, we are 100% reliant on philanthropy right now. The gap between what the average family can pay and what it costs to educate per pupil is is huge. So our average family um, pays about $2,500 um, for the education. And our per pupil is low by any standards. We, we are about 9500 per pupil uh, and achieving great results with that. But still, the delta between 2500 and 9500 is and keep Huge. in mind that even the 9500 is less than half of what the New York City public schools are paying mm-hmm. per pupil. And also keep in mind that the uh, 2500 that her parents are paying on average is in a city where elite private schools are charging close to $40,000 a year. Yeah, it's actually quite impressive that you can educate a kid for $9,500 a year. Yeah. I mean, and that's, again, I think the strength of the foundation of Catholic schools. I mean, I think that because Catholic schools, urban Catholic schools in particular, have been forced to operate on austerity budgets for so long, they haven't built up, you know, bureaucratic back offices. There are a lot of the administrative costs have been kept very, very lean. Um, and that that has been helpful, obviously, in keeping our costs down. And obviously, it, as a school management organization, we have increased our costs over the past couple of years to try to bring it to a sustainable level where we can push excellence, um, but we're trying to keep costs as low as possible so that we have as long a runway as possible for for the schools. As a result, they're operating in elderly buildings uh, with not very many amenities. It looks very much like the school your grandmother went to. When you actually go and have a look, there's just not much else there besides a room and a teacher. So on the voucher front, how much do you and or your organization sort of track the scene, not only in your city and state, but in the country in general? We are very envious of all of the urban Catholic schools that get voucher and tax credit money uh, (laughs) in New York. We get nothing. Um, So, uh, yes. And is is there any hope for vouchers? I mean, if they move their schools to another state. Right, that's what I was thinking. That's what I was... Exactly. Um, Uh, No, there's really no... I mean, there's a battle in New York for tax credits, um, not for vouchers right now. Um, It doesn't, (laughs) things don't look very uh, optimistic over the next, you know, couple of years. We are still hopeful that over the long term we'll be able to get tax credits. But it's, it's, we got very close two years in a row. um, And I I believe Cuomo traded it away at the last minute. And, and, and for this year and the foreseeable future, it looks pretty dicey. The governor would have to pick that up in a very big way. Mm -hmm. And he is probably running for president someday as a democrat he's not going to pick up vouchers in a big way he's pushed pretty well for charters against a lot of opposition in new york state uh but uh not really on the private school support and i'm sure that has something to do with his own political ambitions 
I think the other thing, though, is so. I mean, all of this is true and it's real, and we are we are fighting um, every day to to get access to what I believe. I mean, I, I believe parents should have the right to to choose the school regardless of of their means, and I do believe that um, tax credits and vouchers are a way to do that. But that said, I do think there's there's also a burden on Catholic school leaders to again what I said at the beginning was kind of adapt or die. I, I do think we are at a moment where we have to acknowledge that the landscape has changed, and we have to think differently about how we're going to run our schools if we are going to be competitive, not just to have access to public money, but also to serve the students well. Um, and I do think right now there is, um, there's a lot of apprehension uh, about embracing transparency or accountability. And I understand why. Catholic school leaders don't necessarily look at government intervention kindly, and I don't blame them. I mean, religious liberty is is the most important thing to, to Catholic leaders and Catholic school leaders, and it should be. Um, but I do believe that you have to accept that if you're going to get some kind of public money, there is going to be some oversight. And right now, there seems to be broad resistance to any kind of transparency or accountability, whereas I think that leaders could become creators of their own destiny and they could create their own system of transparency that was stayed true to their Catholic principles and, and to our Catholic identity, but also kind of fed this, this need or desire for greater transparency and greater oversight over the academic results of their schools. I, I'm not a close watcher of the Catholic Church, but my own sense is that at a time when the current Pope uh, is inducing change in many aspects of the Church and upsetting traditionalists as he does so, American Catholic leaders, at least when it comes to education, are stuck in the mud. Uh, and are out of step with the kind of thing the Pope is signaling with respect to so many other aspects of of the church that he leads. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I do think there's a gen. I mean, it's the oldest bureaucracy in the world. It's resistant to change in general. Um, but I do think we could we could you know turn up the temperature just a little bit internally, um, especially if we really value education for all for all students, um, which I, I think we do. I mean, we have a rich history of, um, of of Catholic education and Catholic schools in this country. It remains, I believe, the largest non-public school system in the world. And I think it's worth saving. And that gets back to, you know, when we uh, first started talking this morning, um, you know, I said that there's real strength in the foundation. I, I think the schools are absolutely worth saving. I think they're amazing dedicated leaders, amazing dedicated teachers. I think there's something about the character and values-driven education combined with the focus on content and academic rigor that has has been part of the Catholic school tradition for a long time and is still there and that can really be built on to, to serve students well. But we need to we need to double down and commit to saving them. And if I'm not mistaken, we have in the near future a Fordham report coming out that shows uh, fairly, fairly definitively that Catholic schools actually do have a positive effect on things like character formation, uh, not just cognitive. Uh, as Kathleen said earlier, the, the uh, Catholic schools pay patronized by middle-class suburban and prosperous families are doing fine, uh, like private schools in general. But the inner-city ones, which is where these kids are otherwise stuck in these dire public schools, these dire district schools, or if they're lucky, some charter school alternatives, uh, those are the schools that whose future is at risk. And, of course, those are the schools that serve the kids that most need good schools uh, and aren't getting them today. So it's this is, a, this is a battle. It's been going on for a long time. I mean, I was uh, in the 1970s. At the, at the knee of Daniel Patrick Moynihan as he and Bob Packwood fought for tuition tax credits, mostly for the sake of Catholic schools. It's a long time ago, and we still don't have them except in a handful of states. Well, I feel like, again, going back to the Catholic school leadership, I kind of I kind of crave the, the feisty Catholic school leadership. I'm thinking back, I grew up in New York in the 80s, and I remember John Cardinal O'Connor 
basically daring um, the UFT at the time to send them their hardest to educate kids and they would do it cheaper and better. And there was something really, um, there was some hubris that I loved about that. Yes. Catholic school leaders believed that they had something that was worthy of the investment and that, and that they could actually do it better. And that's the part we've missed. Now A we lot sort of wind of, has gone out of that balloon. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the most depressing visits I have had in the last 10 years was to uh, uh, the Washington office of the National Catholic Education Association, where I felt like everybody was just slowly dying. Yeah. Oof. Sorry. So, so to step back and broaden this a little bit um, at the end here, uh, if vouchers can help Catholic schools sort of survive and hope and even expand from a more national standpoint, what do you think is the best way to get there uh, or phrase another way? What role, uh, if at all, do you think the federal government should play currently in getting more vouchers in more places? Uh, there was a lot of talk at the beginning of the Trump administration about a big uh, private school choice program being built into the tax proposals that they would be making, some kind of a big tax credit scholarship program uh, with federal taxes involved. It is not looking like that's going to be part of what the administration is proposing. If the administration actually ever gets around to proposing anything more than a one-page sheet of guidelines, uh, it is unlikely, I think, in the near term that the federal government is going to do much in this sphere. And if they uh, did, would it be good or bad? Well, there's a huge argument over this. Uh, I think that... From Kathleen's standpoint, it would be good. Um, from the standpoint of uh, school choice generally, it will mean federal regulation of stuff that we just assume they didn't regulate. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm torn on this. Obviously, immediate access to public funding would help us in the near term. Um, but I think right now there's a there's I'm, I'm reticent because, um, you know, the last thing that the federal government got heavily involved in has has really imploded, which is, you know, support for Common Core and for standards and everything has gone down dramatically since the federal government started getting involved. And so I would much prefer to see states driving change. That said, you live in New, New York. York. I know, exactly. So, <laughs> yeah. All right. Interesting. Good, good. Uh, well, this has been great. Uh, thank you, Kathleen. Um, and uh, now it's time for everybody's favorite Amber's Research Minute. Amber? Hey, Brandon. Are you? Uh, so, um, we called Kathleen the Elon Musk of Ed Reform. Are you interested in things like electric or driverless cars or Hyperloops I or the colonization of Mars? I wish that I was. <laughs> I'm not. But I know a lot of people are very interested in going to Mars. I'm not one of them. I used to get into Tesla, like just reading about Tesla cars. And I went to a car show one time and sure. saw like Tesla. And that was pretty darn cool. Yeah. 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 <laughs> the uh, the one that's out now is pretty expensive. But I I think, think it is. I think, I think they're, they're, they're trying to make them more affordable. Yeah, I like don't know. 30 something. Yeah. I think, right. Like Model 3. Not, you're going to you're gonna quickly get out of my reach. Uh, yeah. But yeah. No. I mean, I... That's about the sum knowledge of my Tesla knowledge. But anyway, my husband would know much more. All right. Uh, so what do you have for us today? Uh, we got a new study today out by Sarah Cordes called The Spillover Effects of Charter Schools on Public School Students in New York City. I uh, saw this in a couple press releases and articles this week. So um, pretty cool study. She examines if there are positive or negative effects from charter schools locating near traditional schools and also co-locating with traditional schools. So that's kind of the new part of this. I don't think we've seen a lot of stuff on the effects of co-locating charter and traditional schools on traditional school kids. So her 
sample covers uh, years 1996 to 97 to 2009-10, includes students in grades 3 through 5 currently attending TPS that are located in the same community school district as a charter school with at least one overlapping grade. So this ends up being about 876,000 unique kids attending almost 600 elementary schools over 14 years. So that's a wow. pretty pretty big sample. Yeah. Uh, she does a lot about like methods and methodology. I mean, I'll just highlight one thing that you need to figure out how to control for self-selection when it comes to potentially more motivated families moving to a different traditional school after a charter school opens for whatever reason. Um, and one of the primary ways that she does this is by fixing a student in the first traditional school that he or she is observed in. So in other words, if a student is, is first observed in a traditional school that has ever had a charter school within one mile of it, that student is coded as exposed to a charter school in all the years after the charter school opens nearby that traditional school. So in other words, um, it's trying to basically address the concern that her study could be picking up changes in changes in the student composition uh, versus the performance of each student. So um, anyway, she comes out with a cool way where she can kind of control for some of these things that people might pick at her study for not controlling for. Uh, bottom line, key findings. Number one, charter schools have small positive spillover effects on public school students, increasing math and ELA performance by about 0.02 standard deviation, decreasing grade retention, so less likely that kids will be kept back a grade, uh, by about 20 to 40 percent. Uh, these positive spillovers increase with proximity to the charter and are largest in the co-located schools where the traditional kids' performance increases by about 0.06 to 0.8 standard deviation in both subjects. And then they do some more work around co-location, and they say, you know what, this appears to be specific to charter school um, students only, because when they look at when TPSs are located, co-located with other TPSs, they don't see similar performance gains. So it's kind of unique with your co-locating with a charter school. Finally, uh, they found that traditional schools lost students when charters located nearby, specifically when a charter was between one half mile to one mile from a district school, the district school tended to lose roughly 16 general education students. But when she dug in, she found that those really weren't big enough losses to influence the test scores. So I think where she ended up was, you know, there's ongoing debate about whether charters sap resources, whether they hurt traditional public schools, or whether they lift all boats. I mean, we've been seeing studies, I think there was an Education Next, uh, maybe a year or two ago, there was actually a meta-analysis done on sort of all these competitive effects studies. So this adds to that body of work. Um, but one thing she was able to look into, which, which I haven't seen other studies do, is the impact on instructional suspending. And so one of her last discussions was that um, analysts found that traditional public schools experienced a boost in instructional spending when charters located nearby or co-located. Hmm. So about between 2% for schools that are a half a mile to a mile away, up to 9% boost uh, when they're co-located. So basically good news for those folks who say that charter competition lifts all boats. Um, I have no idea about the spending thing, though. I mean, I yeah. would love if we had someone who could email me, perhaps. We can't call in because we're not live. But um, anyway, I don't know. I don't know how that happened. But they got more money when those charter schools came in the neighborhood and, and co-located. Did they specify what what the funding source was? Uh, instructional spending. Instructional so, spending by the district and state. Oh well, or this the schools spent more. Schools spent more right, of the money and they, they got have on and they right, and presumably got more if they spent more. So right. I mean, what's interesting is it looked like she said it could be uh, new leadership, you know, because it, lots of times that that those principal salaries are in with that instructional spending. Mm -hmm. um, 
not always, but could be. So I don't know. She wasn't really able to explain, you know, how that happened and whatnot. But, you know, when you hear these folks say, well, they're taking away resources. Um, no, not in this case. That didn't happen yeah. either. So I think she sort of overturned a lot of conventional wisdom in the report. It's really thick. Um, it's just a lot in there. And so I really hope that folks will spend some time because, it, could, uh, in my opinion, it could have been two or three different studies because she just kept going, digging in a different layer. I didn't have time to get into. There was a, a survey that she looked at. And, and found that uh, parents were more likely to say their students were engaged uh, in the charter schools once they left. And so she says, well, maybe it has to do with student engagement, that sort of thing. Do they speculate as to what causes the sort of spillover effects? Like, does this add fodder to people who say that yeah. charter schools are good for all schools because they provide sort of competition and competition brings out the best? Yeah, I mean, that's one thing that she said, that when you've got a charter, like, right under your nose, right? This is not five miles away. Mm -hmm. It's a mile or less, or it's in your building. <laughs> so, you know, maybe you're seeing what the different practices they're doing, the different culture, especially when they're same building. I mean, she hypothesized that, like any reasonable person would. Um, I think that the other thing is just, um, you know, parents sort of having a, a, an up-close view of what's going on around the corner, mm -hmm. right? So they're a little bit more informed about the differences between schools, I would imagine. Sure. So maybe you've got more savvy uh, customers. Um, yeah, it's it's hard to tell, but um, but yeah, whatever it is, I mean, one thing that she did say she'd like to get more research on, and we always say that, is um, the number of kids. So maybe it was the fact that, you know, we had lower student-teacher ratios, and that could certainly be at play here, that kids are getting more attention uh, in these schools, and and maybe that's one thing that that's happening. But regardless, uh, it's, it's not what uh, folks always expect to happen when you see these schools move into town. Yeah, and uh, this is a bit tangential, but um, how common is this co-location thing? I, I, I actually didn't didn't know that districts district schools and charter schools often share yeah, the same right? building. I know. Or I mean, often I, enough to like have an effect in exactly. The study? And I wonder how how if it's just a New York City thing, right? Because right. of the scope yeah. of what we're talking about in New York City, and we know that there's been a history there of of you know, sort of charters having a hard time getting buildings, particularly now that we've got you know a different mayor than mm -hmm. we used to have. Um, and so I know that's been sort of a big deal. So um, I'm sure it's in the report somewhere because it was very long, the percentage of, of you know, buildings where you have this co-location. I just don't remember, um, nor do I know how common it is. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I would think that that could really up the game of both schools, right? Sure. When you're just, just observing each other, you know, in some ways competing for each other, having parents talk to each other about their kids. I mean, I can see the um, p potential there for some healthy competition. And uh, finally, um, obviously, uh, the city is very unique um, in a number of ways. Uh, so to what extent is this applicable to other yeah, yeah, even urban great, areas, let alone sort of suburban? I know. It's a great question. And, um, and I would say not entirely, <laughs> right? Because sure. I think it is a uh, unique beast. I mean, the, the scale of New York City, the amount of choice, the politics there. I mean, she's got a whole section on some of the sort of history of, of mm -hmm. chartering in New York City. So unfortunately, I, I would say not entirely. But then again, you've, you've just done the study on the biggest school district in the country. And sure. so um, you've got some scale here to to bolster your claims. So that's a, that's a good thing. Fascinating stuff. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So I guess that's all the time we have for this week's Gadfly Show. Until next week. I'm Amber Northern. And I'm Brandon Wright for the Thomas B. Fordham Institute signing off. The Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.net.